0: live in a time uh, where uh, people like to put other people in certain categories. Uh, There are assumptions that we now make about each other in our society. For example, uh, well-educated or highly educated people are not supposed to attend traditional churches like this one. Uh, Certain people groups or certain finance levels are supposed to vote for a particular political party. Uh, If the Fourth of July comes along... Uh, and you put off fireworks, and you uh, uh, play some uh, Sousa, uh, then you've got to be uh, uh, an adult white male. Uh, We have uh, people who assume all sorts of things about each other, don't we? And we put ourselves, or we have a society that has become quite enamored with putting each other into categories. Well, while we continue our series on men and women that God has used, we are now going to enter a group uh, that are not going to play nicely with many of these categories. In fact, many of these people are going to frustrate these categories because they don't fit in them. And, and that is uh, going to be hopefully a welcome and wonderful thing. As you heard me read, we're here in 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 1, verse 9. And the person I want to talk to you, uh, I want to talk about this morning, is a man by the name of Lemuel Haynes. Uh, Lemuel Haynes was born in 1753 in Hartford, Connecticut. He is considered part of the first generation after what is known as the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening was a period of time, if you're not familiar, uh, in Western Europe and here in America, particularly in the New England area, where there was a sudden increase of interest in biblical Christianity. And during that period of time, there were a record, a recording of a great deal of conversions. They call it the Great Awakening. Well, Lemuel Haynes came really uh, part of the first generation after that happened, and then at the age of twenty-three, the Revolutionary War broke out. He joined the Continental Army. He sided with the uh, the uh, the design to to separate from the British. But if there were two things I would want you to know in order to tell his story this morning, it would be this: first of all, he was a Baptist pastor. So finally we get to talk about somebody normal. (laughs) And second, he was the first African-American ordained by any religious body. Now here, 2 Corinthians, one of the main ideas of the book is the source or the root of our joy. Particularly when it comes to when life goes up and down. When I was a teenager... This country was not at war for the first time in a very long time. The economy was red hot, so much so that I remember my local McDonald's offering a $500 signing bonus to come work for them. And then by the time we get to my late 20s, we've almost been at war for 10 years in Afghanistan, and we're right on the edge of what is now called the Great Recession. And then you think five months ago, nobody saw the social and financial and economic upheaval that would come because of a pandemic. And what Second Corinthians is about and what our text this morning begins to show us is that the root or the reason of our joy is found in a God that we can trust. And it is a God we can trust because this is a God who raises the dead. And I want to talk to you about that this morning. Three points for you. Number one, death is an everyday reality. Death is an everyday reality. I want you to note the phrase here in verse 9. We had the sentence of death in ourselves. Now there's a slight play on words here. But first of all, literally he means that they have decided or they have assumed that their death is imminent literal physical death the only thing the idea there is that the only thing the apostle and his companions could see in their future was death this was not the wording though of a paranoid person if you go through the book of acts you see the riots in ephesus you see the many times he was jailed unlawfully you see the other religious leaders who persecuted him, brought threats to his life. He really was a man who had people, and these were his companions had people, who were desiring to see them die. And we remember that the Apostle Paul was killed at the hands of the Roman government. But there's an additional thought here. Because what verse 8 tells us is that he also has in his mind the idea of the death of dreams. The language used here is the idea of feeling hemmed in by great difficulty. He's a man who can't make plans. Life is so difficult he cannot daydream. The imagination is torn down. And this is quite significant. Because if you read his other writings, many times the Apostle Paul would say things like, I hope to come to you, or I hope to see you as I go here. Or we see, I'm assuming that I would soon be out of jail. And so what he's saying here is that the situation had gotten so bad the things that have become so difficult, the ability to think that way had been completely pressed out of his mind. It's not just that he had the sentence of death in the sense that he was sure at some point they were going to catch up and they were going to kill him. It is the idea that they did not have the physical strength. uh, As you see the wording there at the end of verse 8, pressed out of measure, above strength. He's saying, not only am I in physical danger, it's impossible to know what to do next. There's no there's not enough physical strength, mental strength, emotional strength. There's not enough resources like food and money. The reality of death was an everyday reality. Now Reverend Haynes never knew his parents. He thinks he may have met his mom once, but he can't be sure. But as a child, he was sold to the Rose family as an indentured servant. Now, this is not the same as being a slave, but not by much. You see, he was sold to the Rose family to work to pay off somebody else's debt. Now, because he was an indentured servant, in theory, the idea would be at some point he would have worked enough and and earned his freedom. Many times even that didn't happen. But if you froze time at the moment that he was the indentured, or was given to the Rose family as the indentured servant, you would see an abandoned child, an African-American who was considered the property of another person, and an indentured servant. All of those things would have meant that this was a child who dare not dream and was looking forward to a very short life. Now, the Rose family, though, by God's grace, was different. And they, in fact, invested in Lemuel's education. He would later remark that once he learned how to read, he became a a, a person who just wanted to learn to learn all the time. And that passion led him to the Bible and where he learned about a very different kind of death, eternal death, separation from God. But he was drawn to this, you see, because he learned about a faith where he could be saved by the work of the Savior, not his own. You see, this would have had deep meaning for someone like Lemuel. Because as an African, he would have been given every reason to believe that his soul was not worth very much. He would have questioned why would the God of the universe ever want an African? And so what a joy to learn that acceptance before God deliverance from this eternal death was based on the good works of Jesus Christ and it didn't matter the color of his skin. That brings me to point number 2. Human wisdom human wisdom is insufficient for this everyday reality. Human wisdom is insufficient for this everyday reality. Again come to verse 9 and note the next phrase that we should not trust in ourselves. The idea there is that this crushing, this stretching beyond the capabilities of human strength was for the purpose or had the purpose of God to remove the temptation to trust in self. Why would God do that? Why would God want you to be free of the temptation to trust yourself. Well, the Bible gives a number of reasons, and we can categorize them all under one thing. Human wisdom is insufficient. I'll give you a couple of examples, though. First of all, think about the idea of double-mindedness. The Bible talks about how we as human beings are often driven to and fro in our minds. We, cha- we do this generationally. Think about new parents 50 years ago. They were told some very different things about parenting than new parents today. But it doesn't just happen over the course of a number of years. It can happen instantaneously. Imagine suddenly facing a financial crisis. You might pray, and then your mind wanders over here to whether or not you should get a credit card. Then it wanders over here about whether or not you could go, go get a bank loan. And then it wanders over here and wondering if you could get away with only buying ramen noodles for the next month. Your mind, it goes back and forth, and so we cannot trust ourselves because we are often tossed about. Or we think of the issue, the next example I would give you is the issue of blindness. Not just spiritual blindness, but maybe we'd use the term blind spots. James reminds us that wealth can often bring it bring with it the blind spot of compassion for the poor. We have theories and ideas that come when we have success and we think those theories and ideas are because of what we did. I'll give you an example. I have heard a lot of bad advice given to newly married couples. Somebody very well-intentioned might come along and say, you know what? Our marriage is great. And maybe it is. Our marriage is great because we have a date night every Thursday. Date nights are wonderful. Everybody should have a date night. But you see, date nights, a million date nights, a thousand date nights are not going to make a marriage that pleases the Lord. We like to substitute our wisdom in place of God's wisdom. And the trouble is that we have blind spots that God does not have. And the last reason, and probably the biggest reason the scriptures tell us why we should not be trusting ourselves is because we are glory robbers. It's not always direct. Most of us don't go around going, me, me, me. In Christian ministry, here's how I would describe it to you. A church decides to have a ministry, and the first year they attempt it, it's wildly successful. I've seen this happen. And everybody comes to church the next Sunday, and they're praising and glorifying God for this wonderful grace and mercy he's shown to them. The next year comes around... And they're quite successful again. And maybe there's a little bit of praise, but there's also a wondering, wow, it's because of great leadership. The next year it's because of how much money we put into it. And the next year it's because of how organized we are. And slowly but surely, we replace the praise and glory to God for his grace and mercy with planning and finances and leadership. We are glory robbers. Now, one of the regular habits of the Rose family was to ask one of their children every Sunday night to read a sermon by one of the well-known Puritans. And one evening, it was Lemuel's turn, and so he read the sermon, and everybody there thought it was brilliant. So they asked him which Puritan wrote it, and he responded, I did. And in response to that, the Rose family was so impressed, they sent him for formal ministry training and eventual ordination. And religious historians say that Lemuel Haynes became a pastor, the first African-American Baptist pastor, at a time when New England was experiencing a great moral darkness. You see, at that time, things like universalism had begun to be accepted. The idea that everybody is saved, everybody goes to heaven, everybody is resurrected to glory in the last day. But it wasn't just false teaching. He encountered uh, the ideas of the Enlightenment, the ideas that humans were going to grow and get beyond the need for religion. That science and technology was going to be the, the, the solution to, to poverty, the solution to homelessness. It was going to be the solution to man's uh, temptation to go to war. Think how well that worked out a hundred years later. And with that came all sorts of fads about marriage, about parenting, about money. Most of which were not compatible with biblical teaching but perhaps the biggest issue of lemuel haynes's time was slavery and unfortunately both inside and outside of the church lemuel encountered all sorts of horrific justifications for the atlantic slave trade some tried to argue with him that it was a good thing that they had been brought here because they were brought to a place where they could hear the gospel Some tried to explain it, well, you know, these were prisoners of war from tribal warfare happening on the continent of Africa, so we saved their lives. Some even tried to say, well, the Bible doesn't speak any word negatively about it, so it must be okay. Now, in the face of false teaching, in the face of the Enlightenment, in the face of the issue of slavery, Lemuel Haynes became a powerful defender of Christian orthodoxy. And again and again, he would respond with wisdom that was grounded in the Bible, that was grounded in gospel responses. His essays, if you ever get your hand on his essays and his letters and his sermons, they are profound. As he answers each and one of these things, it's clear. It almost feels like it could have been written yesterday. That brings me to point number three. God raising the dead changes this everyday reality. God raising the dead changes this everyday reality. So in the face of the idea that everything they had done was going to become useless, the dreams would die in the face of actual threats to their life, we get a line here about trusting God. And the reason they trusted God was why? Because this is the God who can raise the dead. Now, why mention that? Well, first of all, think about the argument. He's, of course, referencing the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And in Christ's resurrection, we find the fulfillment of our salvation. In the resurrection of Christ, we find our spiritual resurrection. Ephesians reminds us in chapter 2, we were dead. And then by grace, through faith, we were now what? Alive. Spiritual resurrection. Resurrection. Of course, he's also talking about literal, physical resurrection. Because of our faith in Christ, there is a promise to us that one day we will go from being physically dead to physically alive on the last day. So the ask, the, the, the question then is if you can trust a God who can resurrect you spiritually, and you can trust a God who can resurrect you physically, where are you going to go to, to trust somebody for the resurrection of dreams? Where are you going to go when it comes to the issues and circumstances of life? Or maybe put it this way. If the Apostle Paul were to look one direction, he would see the religious leaders who persecuted him from town to town, always causing problems for him everywhere he went. If you looked another direction, he would see the false teachers who always seemed to be right behind him. Right after he would plant a church and leave, they always seemed to show up at the right time. Or he could look over here and he could see men that he had likely put into leadership over ministry, now calling into question whether or not he was even an apostle. And what and how was he supposed to respond? With five easy steps to church planting? Was he supposed to trust the the law enforcement officers in the judicial system that had already arrested him and imprisoned him falsely several times? Where was he supposed to go? He was going to trust the God who can raise the dead. Lemuel Haynes would often write about the presence, power, and providence of God. He considered it infused into all of life. He was a pastor for 40 plus years, most of those spent in the wilderness of Vermont. And over those 40 plus years, he preached 520 funerals. Many of those, because the life in the wilderness of Vermont was difficult and hazardous, many of those funerals were for young children. And the message he would bring is that they could still trust the God who could raise the dead. But he wasn't always serious. In fact, many of his friends would later remark that when they were in his company, they were often laughing. To get a sense of his humor, one time a friend of his wrote him a letter saying he had lost all of his sermon manuscripts to a house fire. And Lemuel Lemuel wrote back saying, well, perhaps those sermons gave better light by that fire than they ever did from the pulpit. (laughs) He was at a pastor's conference and a, a gentleman was standing next to him and Lemuel turned to him and said, sir, are you writing a book? And the man replied with, well, I'm trying to dabble at it. And which Lumbel responded, well, you uh, you have as much right as those who actually know how. You see, he didn't take himself too seriously. He understood that anything that was ever accomplished, anything that was going to be accomplished, would have to be done by the God who raises the dead. His children would later remark about his belief in God being so great, the fact that God could do anything... It would cause these spontaneous prayer meetings to happen. In fact, when he was dying, in the process of dying, he was praying for his—he was praying to God that the, that God would give peace to his children. The joy he had that God was watching over him always brought him to a place of singing. You see, the fact that God could raise the dead was not just a comfort for death; it was a source of joy for life. Now, our text this morning, Second Corinthians chapter one verse nine, is actually the text of his very last sermon. He was acquainted by that point with every type of death talked about in this passage. And he labored. He continued to push forward because he believed he served a God who could raise the dead. And on his tombstone it reads, Here lies the dust of a poor, hell-deserving sinner who ventured into eternity trusting wholly on the work of Christ for salvation. In full belief, the great doctrines he preached while on earth, he invites his children... And all who read this to trust their eternal interest on that same foundation to a God who raises the dead. Lemuel Haynes believed it was the duty of all people to believe and trust the ruling and good God of the Bible. And whether you're talking or dealing with economic difficulties or national tragedies or community division or health crisis or simply broken dreams, you can trust the God who can raise the dead. But as we said at the beginning... The whole point of this is to be reminded of where we find the roots of our joy. We find the roots of our joy grounded in the grace of the God who can raise the dead. Let's pray. Father, we know, Lord, that we face in many forms a a type of death every day. And Father, we are reminded that we, have, we do not have the tools, the utensils. We do not have the strength, the resources. Human wisdom is insufficient for this constant reality. But the fact that you are a God who raises the dead changes this reality. And I pray, Father, those truths would be a source of joy in our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.